Praise the Lord, everybody. It's a great day to be alive if you're alive. We are so glad we have an opportunity to get into the word with you again. We just want to remind you that have asked in the past when it comes to any giving. Just You just have to mail that in to King of Kings Christian Fellowship, 1224 South Avenue, here at 68370, and then it'll be taken care of by the treasurer, or you can just contact Steve and he'll work, work all of that out for you that are local and right around here. But this evening, we want to get into the scripture. I want to teach you about grace and glory, from grace to glory, and Exodus chapter 23 is very important here. I'm going to read Three verses of scripture, verses 14, 15, and 16. Three times thou shalt keep a feast unto me in the year. Thou shalt keep the feast of unleavened bread. Thou shalt eat unleavened bread seven days as I commanded thee in the time appointed of the month, month Abib. For in it thou camest out from Egypt, and none shall appear before me empty. And the feast of harvest, the first fruits of thy labors, which thou hast sown in the field, and the feast of end gathering, which is in the end of the year, when thou hast gathered in thy labors out of the field. So we want to deal with these verses and deal with grace and glory. So let's quickly pray. Father, for a few moments, as we expound these scriptures, we are so happy that where two or three are gathered, you are right here in our midst. Open the eyes of our understanding. Help us to see things clearly. We're so grateful your son came and died on the cross for us. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. As you can see, the children of Israel were told that they had to appear at a feast. The males certainly had to do that, as recorded there in verse 17. But the three feasts, and we know that these feasts have their, their symbolism in the labors of the Lord Jesus Christ, because the first feast mentioned in verse 15, in connection with that feast of unleavened bread, is the Passover. And then the second one being Pentecost. And then that third one, of course, uh, being Tabernacles. And we, we can say, in, in many ways, because Christ was the Passover, as is stated in the book of Corinthians, that there at the Passover, we have the image of grace. And there at Pentecost, we have the image of power. But there at the tabernacles, at that feast, we have the image of glory. Now, now that's very important because all of this is designated in Scripture by looking at how Christ interpreted this as Paul explained it. Paul told us in the Old Testament that when Moses hit that rock, that rock was Christ. So that tells us that the smiting of the rock represented Calvary and Jesus' death. But it also ensures us that the outflow of the water, bursting forth, gushing forth, that's the outpouring. That's Pentecost. But at the same time, those that are enjoying the very presence of God as they themselves were dwelling in those tents, there's where we have our tabernacles. So all of this is symbolic. And Jesus told the disciples in Luke chapter 24, when he was dealing with this, that all of what Moses dealt with, it brings us to who he is. So let's consider 
how it says in verse 14, three times you're to keep a feast, a feast unto me. So they're to assemble. I don't know if there were people who thought the law was too strenuous or rigorous. And there may have been people who thought that having to go up to this temple or tabernacle over and over again was a bit much. I, I say that because there are people that complain today about maybe having to go to church too often. Well, how often do you have to go to church? I mean, it seems like it's a bit fanatical to think that we need to go to church several times a week. I, I thought 15 to 20 minutes a week would be enough religion for anybody. So why <clears throat> would we even waste our time doing this over and over again? Well, because God commanded it. God never asked a farmer, he never asked a blacksmith, or somebody to work with precious metals, whether or not they wanted to come to the tabernacle. They were obliged to go because in verse 15 it says, as I commanded thee. So what does the scripture say for us that are Christians? Let us not forsake the assembly of ourselves together as the manner of some is. So it was obvious as Paul was dealing with these Hebrew folks that there were people who didn't want to fellowship and get together as often as they could. But there are always people like me. I, I like to fellowship as often as I can. We, we can't have enough church for me. And if, if, if I had any complaint about when I first moved out here to uh, the heartland, it was that we didn't have church enough. It just bothered me. There, there were no night services anywhere. Nobody ever had a revival that, that, that went longer than four or five days. Nobody ever had one that went longer than two days. I mean, the average church wasn't even, even able to hardly pay for a guest preacher to come and, and minister out here. So I told my wife, I said, honey, we're going to have to create the kind of people we are in order to be able to have the kind of services that we want to have. And so in the teaching of the word, we had to help people to see that gathering together has to be of primary importance. Put God first. Well, well hold on. I, I need to go and spend a little time with my family out at the lake. I mean, goodness, I, I work five and a half days a week. I mean, I only get, you know, a little weekend off. Sunday is a good time to go to the lake, and I'd rather go out there and be out there on the boat. You go to church. I go to the lake. I don't see what the problem is. I spend time with God on the deck of the ship. You spend time with God on the pew. Why is there any difference at all? Well, the difference is because in the church, they fellowship as the house of God, and they didn't make God secondary. So we fellowship because this is what the scriptures teach. Now let's go to Exodus 12 and let's observe here something that the Lord is saying in the first few verses here. Passover is the night of the deliverance of the children of Israel from Egypt. Now we don't have time to walk through every element of that picture and demonstrate how Christ is represented, but we do want to make a few connections here. It says in Exodus 12, verse number one, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt and said, this month shall be unto you the beginning of much. We probably need to at least recap what has happened. God sent Moses to Egypt to deliver Israel. Pharaoh didn't want to let the Jewish people go. His heart was hardened. So God sent one plague after another, sparing the Jewish people, but judging the Egyptians. 
It seems to me like the plagues got harder and harder in intensity to the point that in the end, the firstborn were smitten. So Pharaoh was like, look, I'm, I'm tired of all of these dead people around here. And we've dealt with frogs and lice and every other kind of thing you can think of and darkness. You folks get on out of here as quick as you can. So they left. Now then that they're on the outside, God says to Moses, this is the beginning of months. Now, the reason the Passover is important and it comes first is because the blood has to be applied in order for deliverance to come. Had the blood not been applied to the doorpost, everything inside of the house would have been judged by that angel and they would have lost their lives. The moment you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the blood was applied to the doorposts of your heart. It is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. But now, because you've been judged at Calvary, when you pass from this earth and draw your last breath, you move over into eternity. When you stand before the judgment seat, you'll receive your rewards, according to Scripture, for the things you've done in your body, whether good or the bad, as Paul intimates there in Corinthians. Understand then in verse 2 of Exodus 12, if it says this is the beginning of months, it's because Passover is the initial part of your new life. We call it new birth. This is where the calendar begins. Once you become a Christian, God sets you on a new path. And it's at this point, since you've been born from above and you're born anew, you can start thinking about your new life and how God is ordering your steps because the old man is passed away. All things now have become entirely new. So that's very essential. This is the grace of God. The children of Israel never earned this. I cannot even say that they deserve this. Even though God made a covenant with, with Abraham, they failed over and over again. But in his love and in his compassion and in his mercies, which are unfailing, he delivered them and he used a man that was a murderer. So it was grace from the beginning, grace in the middle, grace in the end. And now we see in the beginning, I'm letting you start all over. This is a new beginning for you. So the scripture says in Genesis 1 and 1, in the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God created. And we've said over and over again that if we have God in the beginning, then over and over again, God can create something. In the beginning, God. So if they start with God in this new beginning, something great can come out of it. Now, verse 3, he then tells everybody on that 10th day, take a lamb. It is important for every Christian to know that the moment they are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and they've come into the kingdom of God, having repented of their sins, that they begin to offer to God sacrifices. You say, what kind of a sacrifice? Sacrifice of praise. Glorify God. You, you, you can't give God anything that he just has to have in order to exist, but you can give him a sacrifice of praise. Romans 12 makes it very plain that we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice again. Christ doesn't need to be crucified one more time, but God does want a sacrifice from you and from me. He doesn't want us to go day by day without ever taking the time to stop and say thank you to God. So the children of Israel had to learn this. You've got to set aside some time and everybody take a lamb. That means somebody's got to raise some lambs in order for them to take the lambs. And then someone has to butcher the lambs. It's a time consuming process. And whatever else you may have had on the schedule for that week or for that day, all of that has to be set aside for this thing right here. And as a Christian, 
you've got to set aside time with God. Now that you're born again, you've got to have a period of devotion. You can't get saved and say, well, I just don't have time for God. Then I doubt whether or not you came into this kingdom. Because if you're born again, that means you're born in the image of God, in the likeness of God. God gives you a new attitude, a new disposition. He grabs that cold heart. He squeezes it. He implants in it all the desires that Jesus had within him when it came to his relationship with God. So a person that's born again, they want to read the Bible. They want to fellowship. They want to worship God. They say, Lord, what do I have that I can give you? And this is what we have in verse three. So verse four says, even if the household is just a little one, that somebody has to be able to get with somebody else. And even if they have to share, there's got to be a presentation of the lamb. So that means it doesn't matter how poor you may believe you are. There's always something you can give to God. And praise doesn't cost you anything. God doesn't want a dollar. He doesn't want a million dollars from me. He wants you tithe, but you can give God praise regardless of how many folks there are in your home or how few people there are in your home. Verse five, we understand that Christ is the lamb without blemish. He's the one that was offered. You know, he's the one, the male of the first year in strength and power. He lost his life. We understand that. But but let's again reiterate why Jesus had to come because of sin. I tell you the same story I told you last week or the week before, whenever it was. A little boy in the classroom and the teacher asked the little boy, said, okay, okay, Johnny, if you got 10 sheep in a sheep pen and one sheep jumps the fence, how many sheep do you have left in the pen? A little Johnny looks at the teacher and says, none. Teacher said, I just don't think you understand the equation. This is a math problem, Johnny. Listen to me again. If, if you got 10 sheep that are in the pen and one jumps the fence, how many do you have left? He said, zero. She said, well, I don't, how in the world are you coming up with zero? 10 minus one would leave nine. He says, no, teacher, you don't understand sheep. If one jumps the fence, they all jump the fence. See? So when Adam jumped the fence in the garden, we all jumped the fence with him. And the Bible makes it very plain. Because one man sinned, many were made sinners. But because one man lived righteously, many are made righteous. This is why we had to have the Passover in the first place. Jesus had to come as the Lamb of God without sin in order to die on the cross for us because he who knew no sin was the only one who could become sin in order that we who are sin could be made the righteousness of God. It wasn't in us to do it. It wasn't in us at all. Uh, a gardener can, uh, in fact, I read about this one time. A gardener came and, and he dug up an old briar, you know, with a whole lot of thorns. Just dug it up out of a ditch. And, and he took it and put it right in a bed of roses. And when he planted in, 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 in that soil, he then, I mean, he took a knife and amputated a big, huge part of it, cut a slit in it, and then took the stem of rose, stuck it in that slit, and then bandaged it up, began to bud. So with the passage of time, here comes spring, here comes summer. That beautiful fragrance is coming out of that rose bed, beautiful smelling royal roses. But then that thing that had been a briar is now producing roses on that little stem. And in that, that little, little parable is talking about that. It says how that it's not what came out 
of that briar that produced a beautiful fragrance is what was put in. See, see, in and of ourselves, we are sinners. There's nothing in us naturally that would cause God or anybody else to love us, but it's because he has placed within, within us, Christ in us, the hope of glory, that we can offer to him a sweet-smelling savor, as the scripture says in Romans. So the grace of God is important for us, and then I think I should also at least mention that it says here, in verse number, verse number 10, he says, let nothing of it remain until the morning and that which remaineth of it, ye shall eat. Okay. Now uh, notice then in verse 11, uh, with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, your staff in your hand, ye shall eat it in haste. So this is why it's unleavened. They didn't have time to fix it up the way they would have ordinarily wanted it. And when they got out into the, the wilderness, they had to, to memorialize this by not making it with leaven because this had to signify the haste. Get out as quick as you can. I don't know if you've ever had unleavened anything <clears throat> before in its natural state. But oh, it's terrible. Oh, my. Oh, my. I, I, I made the mistake one time when I lived in Israel. The, the, the guys played a trick on me. They said, Daryl, after the Sabbath service on Saturday morning, we're, we're going to go to McDonald's. I said, oh, that's going to be lovely. McDonald's in Israel. Let's do it. So we finished service, walked around the corner, went to Mickey D's. I walked in there, paid my $22 for whatever happy meal it was at that time because it's so expensive then. And they gave me that food and I sat down. They were all watching me. I had that Big Mac. I just couldn't wait. I mean, I bit into that. Oh, my goodness. I like to die. Just ready to puke. I, mean, I never in my life had a Big Mac with unleavened bread before. It's terrible. Why would anybody want to feed a human being something like that? So imagine then the commemoration every year. The children of Israel had to be reminded of what their parents went through. That's the key. See, the, the memory of it. And this is why us that are believers, we have to constantly be placing ourselves in a position where we remember what our Savior went through. To know what Christ had to endure. So, so very important. And I think in terms of our relationship with him, if we walk with him, we can expect the blessings of God. Now let's go back to Exodus 23. Exodus 23. Notice in verse number 20, he says, Behold, I will send an angel before you to keep thee in the way, to bring thee in the place which I prepared. Beware of him, obey his voice, don't provoke him. He will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. So then we can see the, the very presence of angelic help. Okay. Passover is the grace. Pentecost is the power. And tabernacles being the glory, the angels got to preserve them so that they can pass through all of these cycles. Now, why was Pentecost important? Because of the, the numbering of the Sabbaths, the 50th day, you had the Passover. Then the next day, you had the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Then you had the next day, that offering of that grain. See, And, and they take that little bit of grain, and that's offered to God kind of as a first fruit. Now, they're to count the Sabbaths from that day, that second day, coming all the way up till they get to 50th. 
And then when they get to the 50th day, whatever's harvested there during that period, they're going to have to take that grain, make it into two loaves. It's going to be leavened bread. And then the priests on that 50th day are going to take that as an offering and wave that before the Lord. And the Lord's going to find that acceptable in his sight. But it has to be baked with leaven. Has to be. Well, it passes through the fire, then God accepts it as an offering. So that's our sanctification, or at least a part of it. We come into this kingdom, and God's doing everything he can to separate the wheat and the chaff from us, to separate what's good and what's bad in that Christian life. The Spirit of God is at work inside of us, agitating us, just like an agitator in the old washing machine, trying to cleanse, trying to purify the Christian life is all about that kind of a sanctification. And you might think you're going around in a circle and in a cycle, but the whole point of it is to bring about holiness and purity in your life. And John even told us that having the hope of the coming of the Lord purifies those who believe. On the day of Pentecost, that 50th day after the children of Israel had made their way out of Egypt, here they're going up to get the law. Moses is on the top of the mountain. Power God falls down. Fire appears. There's smoke and blackness and all kind of stuff like that. But yet Jesus Christ comes and dies on that cross. He's the Passover. He comes up on the third day. He spends 40 days with the disciples, teaching them about what's going to transpire in the kingdom of God. And then they've got a few more days where they're just kind of hanging out in Jerusalem. They're all in fellowship and praying, they're replacing Judas because of what he's done. And then one day they're all gathered together and the wind began to blow in that place. Tongues of fire appeared. Men began to speak with other tongues. Pentecost was important because of the harvest. They would never be able to do what God needed for them to do in the harvest without the power, the unction, and the anointing. Of the Holy Spirit. God knew that. You say, what's the difference between doing it with the Spirit of God and ministering without it? The, the difference is about the same as somebody today trying to farm with a mule and some oxen and somebody else that's got some kind of a planter. That's the difference. So it's a matter of power, matter of energy, matter of ability in dealing with that witness. So Pentecost is about power, but then we move over into that area where it talks about the end gathering because this is the tabernacles. Now we know the children of Israel lived in tents for 40 years. We understand that. But let's take this interpretation. Instead of just thinking about the children of Israel living in the wilderness, let's invert it. Think about not the people down here praying about trying to reach up to God, but let's think about the fact that John chapter 1 says... That God became flesh and tabernacled amongst men. Think about the fact that it says in Revelation. that John behold new Jerusalem descend out of heaven like a bride. Then he heard a voice that said behold the tabernacle of God is with men. See, He'll wipe away all tears. So God comes down to live amongst us. This is the glory. They said we beheld. His grace, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. The scripture says our bodies now are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God came to live in us, human beings. And one day, we're going to leave this old clay earth and we're going to be in the presence of God forever where there'll be no need for a sun or a moon or the stars. But we'll live in the light and the glory of his presence. I mean, the end gathering is going to be wonderful. 
One day the trump of God truly is going to sound. There's no doubt about it. One day the dead in Christ are going to rise. We which are alive are going to be caught up to be with him. It's going to be a great ingathering and a marriage supper of the Lamb. We'll all be together in the presence of the King. Totally different bodies, but it'll be miraculous. So from the time they left Egypt until the time they came into the promised land, there were so many points of interest that, that indicate God had something else he was going to do in the Messiah when he came. Notice again, Exodus 23, beginning with verse 20. They had angelic protection. Now they lived under the old covenant and had angelic protection. What do you think you have? The scripture says the angel of the Lord encamps about those who fear him. I fear him. I have a holy reverence and awe for him. So that tells me I have divine protection. But also, the scripture says in the Gospels, you be very careful how you treat these little children. But you need to know they're angels Stand in the presence of God. God's looking at them. So whatever else that text means, it means that the little infants and children have angelic presence before the throne of God. God takes notice of them. So I understand then, because of the new covenant that we have, which makes our covenant so much better than the one under the old covenant that was based upon promises that they could not ever really uh, obtain or reap the reward of. We are the ones who are beneficiaries because we've reaped the blessing. We have more than a promise. We have the blessing. Everywhere you go and everywhere I go, we should expect that God has divine help and protection for us. So when I got in the car and drove here today, I'm sure there was an angel of God moving about with me. I don't need to know where he is. I don't need to know who he is. I don't need to know his name. I don't need to try to have conversations with him like some crazy people do. I don't need to do any of that. All I need to do is live the Christian life and expect preservation and deliverance when it's needed. Notice here, verse 21, beware of him and obey obey his voice. The children of Israel quickly learn. If he says something, you obey. But you don't need to initiate any kind of conversation. Verse 22, if you shall indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy unto your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Know what God is saying? Look out, devil. That's what he said. Look out, devil. Yeah. People that don't like you, they're on the wrong side. People that attack you as a Christian, they're on the wrong side. They should be on the side of God. How do I know they're on the wrong side? Look what happened to Saul in Acts chapter 9. He was persecuting the church. Jesus showed up and said, Saul, you're on the wrong side. And you need to get right. And he did. He did. Verse 23. 23, My angel shall go before you and bring you into the Amorites and Hittites. Now we've got different adversaries as Christians today. We're not worried about natural enemies. Scripture says we're not wrestling with flesh and blood, but principalities, powers, rulers of darkness, wickedness, and high places. I I see people sometimes, they're quite nervous about spiritual warfare and what's going on in the heavenlies. We've got to help the angels. I can assure you, they don't need my help. I'm the one who always needs theirs. They don't need anything from me. They just simply need me to believe God 
and trust that God's going to bring me through. That's all. And, and, and in, the, in, the, in the heavenly realm and in the spiritual realm, the battles and stuff like that that's taking place that we cannot see with our natural eye, they don't even need to let me know about it. All I need to do is trust God. If they're, if they're doing anything, they're learning from us about redemption. They're looking in, trying to observe the way that Christians live in covenant with God. They've never been redeemed. So verse 24, don't bow down to the gods of these other people. So we won't do that today. Don't serve them. Don't do after their works, but you shall utterly overthrow them and quite break down their images. And that's exactly what the scripture says. Tear down every imagination that exalts itself against God. That's exactly what you're to do. When this world comes to us with information that is contrary to God's teaching, then we immediately overthrow those thoughts so that we can erect in our minds faith and trust and fear of God. And anything that we allow to erect itself in our minds, it becomes a stronghold. And I can tell you, if a little kid starts off learning and two plus two is five, it's going to take some time to get that out of his head because they honestly believe they ought to be five. You can show it to them over and over again. They'll say, the teacher taught me two and two is five. But as a Christian, we, we quickly learn that the only way two plus two is going to be five is if God gets involved with some miracles. That, that, that's it. So as a believer then, we're to serve God and trust him. God has a way to take us from grace to glory. And the way he's going to do that is by us humbly submitting to his will. One day, folks, we're all going to receive glorified body. Oh, it's going to be wonderful. It's going to be absolutely wonderful. I'm going to lay down this body that gets tired. I'm going to lay down this body that sometimes it, 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 it has an ailment or something like that. I'm going to lay down this body that, that understands the power of God and healing and recovery of health. This thing is going to be laid down and we're going to receive a glorified body. It's going to be amazing. I mean, it's be nice to have 18-inch biceps if we get desires of our hearts. You know, it's going to be wonderful. It's going to be wonderful. <clears throat> and people that are short, if they want to be taller, they'll be able to be a little bit taller. And I promise you, the one thing about God is when we get to heaven, everything is going to be timely. There won't be anybody up there showing up for Bible study late. They all get there when they need to be there. Praise the Lord. God's taken us from grace to glory, folks. Trust God and let's believe in him and we'll expect that God will speak to us. The next time we get together, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you. How wonderful your word is. We pray that every day you help us to love you more and more. Help us to keep falling in love with you over and over again, over and over again, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. 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 Praise the Lord. Amen.